Welcome to the October 2011 Respiratory Care Podcast. This is Dean Hess, editor of the journal, along with Sarah Forge. Sarah, let's get started. Preliminary evaluation of a new index to predict the outcome of a spontaneous breathing trial is by DeLisle et al. The authors devised a new index, the CORE index, which is based on compliance, oxygenation, respiration, and effort. The objective of this study was to compare the CORE index to the CROP index, airway occlusion pressure 0.1 second after the start of inspiratory flow, and the rapid shallow breathing index for predicting spontaneous breathing trial success or failure in a critical care environment. The areas under the receiver operating characteristic curve were 0.99 for core, 0.91 for crop, 0.81 for airway occlusion pressure, and 0.77 for the rapid shallow breathing index. The authors concluded that the core index was the most accurate predictor of spontaneous breathing trial success or failure. For as long as I have been a respiratory therapist, there has been a search for an accurate predictor of a mechanically ventilated patient's likelihood to tolerate spontaneous breathing and extubation. Many of us were enthusiastic about the RISB when it was first described 20 years ago. However, the RISB may not be as useful as once thought. This new index by these authors is interesting, but as pointed out by Sessler and Grossman, we await confirmation of its generalizability and reproducibility. Our next paper is Bench Study of a New Device to Display and Maintain Stable Artificial Airway Cuff Pressure by Howard. The objective of this study was to evaluate a new cuff inflation device that continuously displays the cuff pressure and maintains stable cuff pressure. The bias and precision of the device's display compared to the calibration analyzer was 1.3 plus or minus 2.6 centimeters of water. The pressure delivered by the cuff inflation device's gas sampling line to the pilot balloon was equal to the pressure displayed by the cuff inflation device. With the cuff inflation device, the cuff pressure was unchanged compared to baseline after adding 5 milliliters or 10 milliliters of air. With two current methods, cuff pressure increased to values exceeding 160 centimeters water and 300 centimeters of water. Compared to the benchmark, the difference in exhaled tidal volume bias and precision were cuff inflation device 1.4 plus or minus 4.8 milliliters and syringe inflation method 2.4 plus or minus 6.2 milliliters. Representing a single cuff pressure check disconnecting the endotracheal tube pilot balloon from the cuff inflation device's gas sampling line and then reconnecting it had no effect on baseline cuff pressure at 2 seconds or 60 seconds. The author concluded that the cuff inflation device demonstrated possible improvements over available cuff inflation devices and cuff pressure control methods. As Herford suggests in his editorial, we need innovative and cost-effective approaches for controlling cuff pressure. Artificial airway cuff pressure should be maintained within a narrow range to avoid injury and to minimize microaspiration. 
Howard conducted a laboratory evaluation of a new cuff inflation device that continuously displays and maintains the cuff pressure stable. Although the results will need to be confirmed in patients, the cuff inflation device demonstrated improvements over available cuff inflation devices and cuff pressure control methods. Religious and spiritual coping and quality of life among patients with emphysema in the National Emphysema Treatment Trial is by Green and colleagues. The objective of this study was to describe the utilization of religious and spiritual coping and its relationship to quality of life among patients with emphysema in a two-year longitudinal follow-up study. Forty patients with emphysema who participated in the National Emphysema Treatment Trial were matched on age, sex, race, and education with 40 healthy individuals recruited from the community. A baseline assessment was conducted of overall coping strategies, psychological functioning, quality of life, pulmonary function, and exercise capacity. The authors also assessed overall coping strategies, and religious and spiritual coping at the two-year follow-up. 90% of the patients with emphysema considered themselves at least slightly religious or spiritual. The patients reported using both negative religious coping, such as questioning God, and positive religious coping, such as prayer, more than the healthy control subjects at follow-up. However, greater use of religious and spiritual coping was associated with poorer illness-related quality of life. The authors concluded that patients with emphysema appear to use various coping strategies in responding to their illness. Although prior research indicates that religious and spiritual coping is associated with positive health outcomes, few studies have examined this among patients with emphysema. It is interesting, but perhaps not surprising, that patients reported both positive and negative religious coping more than healthy control subjects. Also not surprising, the greater use of religious and spiritual coping was associated with poorer illness-related quality of life. As Drescher points out, additional research with a larger sample size and a more general population of patients with end-stage COPD is needed to further clarify the role of religious and spiritual coping. Our next paper is Volume Targeted versus Pressure Targeted Non-Invasive Ventilation in Patients with Chest Wall Deformity, a Pilot Study by Struwick et al. The objective of this study was to determine whether volume-controlled or pressure-controlled NIV is easier to implement in patients with chronic respiratory failure due to chest wall deformity. They randomized 13 ventilator-naive patients to receive either volume-targeted or pressure-targeted nocturnal NIV. Two patients did not tolerate volume NIV and switched to pressure NIV. NIV was successfully established in both groups after a median of six days. There were no significant differences between the groups at any time in PaCO2 or PaO2 improvement, nor in changes over time. The authors concluded that there was no significant difference in days needed to successfully establish volume NIV versus pressure NIV in patients with chest wall deformity. 
Long-term non-invasive ventilation is an effective treatment for patients with chronic respiratory failure due to chest wall deformity. Whether volume-targeted or pressure-targeted ventilation should be used is unknown. In this study of ventilator-naive patients, there was no difference in the improvement in blood gases with volume-targeted or pressure-targeted nocturnal non-invasive ventilation. However, two patients switched from volume-targeted to pressure-targeted non-invasive ventilation, suggesting that they preferred the pressure-targeted approach. Aerosol delivery and humidification with a Bozignac continuous positive airway pressure device is by Thiel and colleagues. The objective of this study was to assess the effectiveness of bronchodilator aerosol delivery during CPAP generated by the Bozignac system and its optimal humidification system. The authors first assessed the relationship between flow and pressure generated in the mask with the Bozignac CPAP system. Next, they measured the inspired gas humidity during CPAP with several humidification strategies in nine healthy volunteers. They then measured the bronchodilator aerosol particle size during CPAP with and without a heat and moisture exchanger in a bench study. Finally, in seven patients with acute respiratory failure and airway obstruction, they measured work of breathing and gas exchange after a bronchodilator aerosol delivered during CPAP or via standard nebulization. Optimal humidity was obtained only with a heat and moisture exchanger or heated humidifier. The heat and moisture exchanger had no influence on bronchodilator aerosol particle size. Work of breathing decreased similarly after bronchodilator via either standard nebulization or CPAP, but PaO2 increased significantly only after CPAP aerosol delivery. The authors concluded that CPAP bronchodilator delivery decreases work of breathing as effectively as does standard nebulization, but produces a greater oxygenation improvement in patients with airway obstruction. To optimize airway humidification, a heat and moisture exchanger could be used with a Bosignac CPAP system without modifying aerosol delivery. The Bosignac device is an open CPAP system that does not require the use of a flow generator. Using this device, Theo et al. evaluated aerosol delivery and humidification. CPAP bronchodilator delivery decreased the work of breathing as effectively as standard nebulization, but produced a greater oxygenation improvement. A heat and moisture exchanger could be used with the Bosignac CPAP system without modifying aerosol delivery. The paper, Chair Sitting Exercise Intervention Does Not Improve Respiratory Muscle Function in Mechanically Ventilated Intensive Care Unit Patients, is by Chang et al. The objective of this study was to evaluate the effect of chair sitting during exercise training on respiratory muscle function in mechanically ventilated patients. The authors randomized 16 patients to a control group and 18 patients to a chair sitting group. The patients in the chair sitting group were transferred by two ICU nurses from bed to armchair and rested for at least 30 minutes based on the individual patient's tolerance. In the treatment group before transferring the patient from bed to an armchair and 30 minutes after the completion of chair sitting, 
the authors measured a number of respiratory muscle function variables. In the control patients, the authors took those same measurements while the patient was in semi-recumbent position before and after treatments for at least six days or until the patient was discharged from the ICU or died. The two groups did not significantly differ. Respiratory rate, tidal volume, rate to tidal volume ratio, oxygen saturation, inspiratory pressure and expiratory pressure were not significantly better in the chair-sitting group. The authors concluded that six days of chair-sitting exercise training did not significantly improve respiratory muscle function in mechanically ventilated patients. Chang et al. conducted a randomized controlled trial to evaluate the effect of chair sitting on respiratory muscle function in mechanically ventilated patients. Unfortunately, six days of chair sitting exercise training did not significantly improve respiratory muscle function in these patients. However, these results should not be interpreted to mean that chair sitting is of no value as there are many benefits of early mobility in mechanically ventilated patients. This month, we are pleased to publish the six papers from the 26th New Horizons Symposium ARDS Update, which was presented at the 56th International Respiratory Congress of the AARC on December 7, 2010. The first is, What is the Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome by Villar? It has been known for decades that shock and sepsis can cause a syndrome of acute respiratory failure with characteristics of non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Over the years, this syndrome has been given a number of names, including congestive atelectasis, traumatic wet lung, and shock lung. In 1967, the modern counterpart to this syndrome was described and subsequently called the Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. This syndrome represents a study of lung injury and inflammation. As with inflammation elsewhere, ARDS is accompanied by many cellular and molecular processes, some of which are specific to the syndrome, others perpetuating the syndrome, and still others inactivating the byproducts of inflammation. Since no specific clinical sign or diagnostic test has yet been described that identifies ARDS, its diagnosis is based on a constellation of clinical, hemodynamic, and oxygenation criteria. Current ARDS treatment is mainly supportive since these patients frequently have coexisting conditions. Although, in 1994, a new standard for ARDS definition was accepted, that definition failed to standardize the measurement of the oxygenation defect and does not recognize different severities of pulmonary dysfunction. Based on current evidence, there is a need for a better definition and classification system that could help us to identify ARDS patients who would be most responsive to supportive therapies and those unlikely to benefit because of the severity of their disease process. This paper examines our current understanding of ARDS and discusses why the current definition may not be the most appropriate for research and clinical practice. 
since no specific clinical sign or diagnostic test has yet been described that identifies ARDS, its diagnosis is based on a collection of clinical, hemodynamic, and oxygenation criteria. So this raises the obvious question, what is the acute respiratory distress syndrome? As addressed by Villar, based on current evidence, there is a need for a better definition and classification system that could help us to identify ARDS patients who would be the most responsive to supportive therapies and those unlikely to benefit because of the severity of their disease process. Our next New Horizons paper is from Littell and colleagues, and its title is Acute Lung Injury, Prevention May Be the Best Medicine. Acute lung injury affects a subset of hospitalized patients, but is not universal. This syndrome can substantially delay ventilator liberation, prolong ICU stay, and increase mortality. As with many critical illness syndromes, the available treatment options are limited in number and impact. Once a patient develops lung injury, the best-known strategy is supportive care. Observational studies have identified potential risk factors and have suggested that the use and timing of certain critical care interventions may influence the likelihood of developing lung injury. These findings suggest that a well-designed screening tool and the systematic application of best practices in critical care may limit the risk of lung injury. An effective prediction score may also facilitate enrollment in pharmacopreventive trials. Development of such tools is accelerated by multicenter collaboration. ALI can substantially delay ventilator liberation, prolong intensive care unit stay, and increase mortality. Once a patient develops ALI, the best-known strategy is supportive care. As Lytel et al. discuss in their paper, observational studies suggest that a well-designed screening tool and a systematic application of best practices in critical care may limit the risk of developing ALI. Next is the paper, Approaches to Conventional Mechanical Ventilation of the Patient with Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome by Hess. To minimize ventilator-induced lung injury, attention should be directed towards avoidance of alveolar over-distension and cyclical opening and closure of alveoli. The most impressive study of mechanical ventilation to date is the ARDS network study of higher versus lower tidal volume which reported a reduction in mortality from 39.8% to 31% with 6 milliliters per kilogram ideal body weight rather than 12 milliliters per kilogram ideal body weight. To achieve optimal lung protection, the lowest plateau pressure and tidal volume possible should be selected. What is most important is limitation of tidal volume and alveolar distending pressure regardless of the mode set on the ventilator. Accumulating observational evidence suggests that tidal volume should be limited in all mechanically ventilated patients, even those who do not have ALI or ARDS. Evidence does not support the use of pressure-controlled inverse ratio ventilation. Although zero PEEP is probably injurious, an area of considerable controversy is the optimal setting of PEEP. Available evidence does not support the use of higher PEEP 
compared to lower PEEP in unselected patients with acute lung injury or ARDS. However, results of a meta-analysis using individual patients from three randomized controlled trials suggests that higher PEEP should be used for ARDS, whereas lower PEEP may be more appropriate in patients with ALI. PEEP should be set to maximize alveolar recruitment while avoiding over-distension. Many approaches for setting PEEP have been described, but evidence is lacking whether any one approach is superior to any other. In most, if not all, cases of ALI or ARDS, conventional ventilation strategies can be used effectively to provide lung protective ventilation. As I describe in this paper, in most cases of ALI and ARDS, conventional ventilation strategies can be used effectively. Attention should be directed towards avoidance of alveolar overdistension and cyclical alveolar opening and closure. To achieve optimal lung protection, the lowest possible alveolar distending pressure and tidal volume should be selected. Accumulating evidence suggests that tidal volume should be limited in all mechanically ventilated patients. Results of a meta-analysis using individual patients from three randomized controlled trials suggest that higher PEEP should be used for ARDS, whereas lower PEEP may be more appropriate in patients with ALI. Evidence is lacking that any one approach to setting PEEP is superior to any other. Approaches to refractory hypoxemia in acute respiratory distress syndrome, current understanding, evidence, and debate is by Collins and Blank. ALI and ARDS cause substantial morbidity and mortality. Despite our improved understanding of lung injury, advancements in the application of lung protective ventilation, and strategies to prevent ventilator-induced lung injury. Severe refractory hypoxemia may develop in a subset of patients with severe ARDS. They review several approaches referred to as rescue therapies for severe hypoxemia, including lung recruitment maneuvers, ventilation modes, prone positioning, inhaled vasodilator therapy, and the use of extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Each shows evidence for improving oxygenation, though each has associated risks, and no single therapy has proven superior in the management of severe hypoxemia. Importantly, better survival with these strategies has not been clearly established. Severe refractory hypoxemia may develop in a subset of patients with severe ARDS. Collins and Blank reviewed several rescue therapies for severe hypoxemia, including lung recruitment maneuvers, ventilation modes, prone positioning, inhaled vasodilator therapy, and the use of extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Although these strategies may improve oxygenation in some patients, each has associated risks and no single therapy has proven superior in the management of severe hypoxemia. Importantly, better survival with these strategies has not been clearly established. Next is the paper, Non-Invasive Ventilation for Patients with Acute Lung Injury or Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome by Nava et al. Few studies have been performed of NIV to treat hypoxic acute respiratory failure in patients with ALI or ARDS. 
The outcomes of these patients for whom endotracheal intubation is not mandatory depend on the degree of hypoxia, the presence of comorbidities and complications, and the illness severity. The use of NIV as an alternative to invasive ventilation in severely hypoxemic patients with ARDS is not generally advisable and should be limited to hemodynamically stable patients who can be closely monitored in an intensive care unit by highly skilled staff. Early NIV application may be extremely helpful in immunocompromised patients with pulmonary infiltrates in whom intubation dramatically increases the risk of infection, pneumonia, and death. The use of NIV in patients with severe acute respiratory syndrome and other airborne diseases has generated debate, despite encouraging clinical results, mainly because of safety issues. Overall, the high rate of NIV failure suggests a cautious approach to NIV use in patients with ALI or ARDS, including early initiation, intensive monitoring, and prompt intubation if signs of NIV failure emerge. Few studies have been performed using non-invasive ventilation to treat acute respiratory failure in patients with ALI or ARDS. As pointed out by Nava et al., use of NIV as an alternative to invasive ventilation in severely hypoxemic patients with ARDS is not generally advisable. NIV use may be helpful in immunocompromised patients with pulmonary infiltrates in whom intubation increases the risk of infection, pneumonia, and death. The use of NIV in patients with severe ARDS has generated debate, and the high failure rate suggests a cautious approach to NIV in these patients. Our final paper from the New Horizons Symposium is Pediatric Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome by Scheivitz. The available data to guide clinical management of acute lung injury and acute respiratory distress syndrome is much more limited for infants and children than for adult patients. This paper reviews the available medical data and the pertinent physiology on the management of pediatric patients with ALI. With the collaboration of multicenter investigation networks, definitive pediatric data may be on the horizon to better guide our clinical practice. As Scheivitz points out in his paper, the available evidence to guide clinical management of ALI and ARDS is much more limited for infants and children than for adult patients. With the collaboration of multicenter investigation networks, definitive evidence for children may be on the horizon to better guide clinical practice. This month, we publish an AARC clinical practice guideline on incentive spirometry. The case reports address rhodococcus equi infection after lung transplantation, the relationship between diffuse pulmonary fibrosis, alveolar proteinosis, and granulocyte macrophage colony stimulating factor autoantibodies, and sildenafil to facilitate weaning from inhaled nitric oxide and mechanical ventilation in a patient with severe pulmonary hypertension and patent foramen ovale. Our teaching cases this month are non-surgical management of giant lung bullae during mechanical ventilation and 
diagnosis of idiopathic tracheal stenosis and treatment with papillotum electrocautery and balloon bronchoplasty. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.